قال الله عز وجل في كتابه الكريم بعد أن أقول أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم لا إكراه في الدين قد تبين الرشد من الغي فمن يكفر بالطاغوت ويؤمن بالله فقد استمسك بالعروة الوثقى فانفصام لها والله سميع عليم الله ولي الذين آمنوا يخرجهم من الظلمات إلى النور والذين كفروا أولياؤهم الطاغوت يخرجونهم من النور إلى الظلمات أولئك أصحاب النار هم فيها خالدون رب شحني صدري ويسر لي أمري وأحل العقدة من لساني يقه قولي واللهم ثبتنا عند الموت بلا إله إلا الله واللهم اجعلنا من الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر أمين يا رب العالمين Today's khutbah I will be focused especially on the young audience that's sitting here and my due apologies to those of you that do not understand the English language. What I wanted to start off with is an understanding of how in many societies religions are seen, not just now but even historically. There are religious majorities and there are religious minorities. And the minorities, historically, these are people that are ashamed of being part of that religion because they don't fit with the majority. So they're looked down on as second class or they're looked down at as inferior people. They live in the poorer neighborhoods. They don't belong. They don't fit with the elite. They don't fit with the, with the mainstream of that society. This has been the case historically with many, many communities. And especially sometimes what happened was the minority community that was religious, they were doing well. So they were running good businesses. They were well-educated. And even though they're a small number, then they were especially hated by that society. These people are sucking the blood of our society. These are the these are the problem in our society. They're not one of us. These are the foreigners. And this kind of mentality existed towards those that were successful. An interesting recent example of that in the in the world is Sri Lanka. And in Sri Lanka, the Muslims are a very small minority, but they're actually very well educated. They have good jobs. They run good businesses. They're actually, in some sense, the economic and social part of the economic and social elite of that society. And you find that in Sri Lanka, every few years, there's an eruption. You know, Buddhists are known to be pacifists. pacifists. They're supposed to be peaceful. You associate Buddhism with people that are, you know, that are, that are doing uh, all kinds of peaceful activities, going up in the mountains and concentrating and meditating. And yet you find in Sri Lanka, they have the most anti-Muslim hateful speeches that make Nazis look calm. That's the level of speech that they give towards the Muslims. And there's eruption of violence against the Muslims every few years. This happens towards the Muslims. So, and, and in this case, this happens to be the minority, happens to be the Muslims. But the reality of the world's history is any religious minority becomes a target. If they are, if they are succeeding, if they are becoming more prominent, if they are becoming more powerful, then they become a problem for that society. And if they are under, they're living in the poor neighborhoods, they're downtrodden, etc. Then these are the second class people. These are the, you know, these are the people we look down on. They're not the same as us. They're not equal to us. This has been the mentality of the world for a long time. But now we find ourselves in a different age altogether. We find ourselves in an age where in many countries, religion itself 
is a minority. So we live in societies that are predominantly, even if people, their parents were Christian or their parents were Jewish or their parents were Hindu and their parents were Muslim, they don't identify themselves too much with that religion. Practically, they're all the same. They're all hanging out together. They all have the same habits. So you might find at a bar in different countries, you might find a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu all having a drink together. It's common. So the, the religion itself has become less and less and less relevant. And so those people who try to hold on to their religion, and of course today I'll be talking about ourselves, Muslims, those who try to hold on to their religion, they become strange. Why do you, like if, you, if you're a doctor and you work at a hospital and you take break for salah to pray dhuhr, your, co your colleagues are saying, why do you do that? Don't you know your religion is so extreme? I mean, it's such an... Such a barbaric religion, it's so backwards. Why do you follow that? I thought you're an educated man. So, and if you're in the university, and if there's a, there's a girl in the university and she's wearing the hijab, everybody's looking at her like, why are you wearing that? What's wrong with you? Because this is not the way someone educated and intelligent and modern is supposed to be. This is a backwards thing. This belongs in villages and third world countries and places that, you know, people that kill each other. This is for those backwards people. Why are you following this? I thought you're smarter than that. So the deen, anything that looks like Islam is looked at like it's backwards. But this is not just something that happens in Europe or just happens in Australia or happens in some parts of America. Or, it's not just there. This is actually something that happens even in the Muslim world. Even in the Muslim world. You can go to the Muslim world where the Muslims are supposed to be the majority. Right? We call them Muslim countries. It's a strange word to use when you go in those majority Muslim countries and you go, some of my friends from America, they went back to their home country and it's time for salah and they went to pray. They heard the adhan and they went into the masjid and they prayed. There's a 20 year old young man went to pray in the masjid and all of his cousins, all of his friends are like, what are you doing? Why are you going in the masjid? What's wrong with you? Oh my God, did you become a sheikh? You know, they think, Muslims think, that even something basic like that is extreme. So we're living in a time now where being a Muslim is seen as something strange. Interestingly, it's seen as something strange by non-Muslims, but it's also seen as something strange by Muslims themselves. They themselves. And in that environment, you feel like you always have to defend your religion. There are people who write to me, that talk to me, you know, young women that are doing their PhD in microbiology and other subjects, very intelligent people, right? And they pray and their colleagues are atheists and they're always making fun of Islam, always making fun of the Quran, always making fun of the Prophet And they're like, how do I answer these people? What do I say to them? We're always defending ourselves. We're always under the attack, verbally at least, and we're always defending ourselves. No, 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 Islam is not like that. Oh, yeah, those are some crazy Muslims. I'm not like them. I'm normal. We're just trying to prove ourselves to be normal all the time. So you're always on the defensive, on the defensive, on the defensive. And you know what? It doesn't feel good to be on the defensive. Then eventually the thought comes in your head. Maybe Islam is not so great after all. Why do I have to follow this religion? If everybody around me, these really smart people, they think it's a stupid thing to do to follow this religion. The majority thinks it's an idiotic thing. So why am I holding on to it so much? Maybe it's just because of my, is it because of my parents? Is that why I'm Muslim? Is it because I come from a, you know, a brown country? 
a black country? Is that why you're Muslim? That's the only reason? It's because, you know, I, it was given to me. Like, you know, if I was born in a, a Hindu family, maybe I would have been Hindu. If I was born in a Christian family, maybe I would have been Christian. Maybe the only reason I'm Muslim is because I was born in a, in a Muslim family. That's, that's the only reason. Why else do I have to hold on to this religion? And the only reason I'm not questioning it, because if I question it, my mother will have a heart attack. But actually in my head, I have all these questions. Because all these questions were put in my head by the world around me. And anybody who's successful looks like anybody who's successful is not religious. So you know what else is happening? And anybody who's extreme and backwards is religious. So in my head, success is the same as not being religious. And being backwards and extreme is the same as being religious. So why do I need this religion? I don't want to be unsuccessful. I don't want to be backwards. I even met someone who told me that even though they know better, they know better. But the moment they see a Muslim, the moment they see a woman in hijab, they think this is someone backwards and oppressed. This is someone oppressed. This is someone who doesn't have freedom. This is someone who is doesn't understand how to live in the modern world. They're, you know, and and this is not even some non-Muslim looking at a Muslim. This is a Muslim looking at a Muslim and saying, oh, look, an oppressed person. You understand? So these perceptions that are constantly being bombarded to you and I, even the adults get infected by it. And why do you think a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old will not be affected by this? Why do we think it's automatic that we're just going to be able to pass on our religion and our children will be better Muslims than we are automatically? Well, if we're if holding on to the religion is a minority, and it's actually considered less than intelligent. And it's not socially acceptable. It's not the cool thing to be. It's weird. It's strange. <clears throat> One time I went to play basketball with some young guys in America in a place. And it was time for Salah. I was out in a park. It's time for Salah. So we go in a corner and a few of us prayed. And the other boys that normally they pray, they didn't pray. And I wonder, why didn't they pray? So I talked to them afterwards. Why didn't you join the prayer? You know, other people were there. They were staring at us. It just kind of feels strange to pray in front of them. You know, like they're, they're going to look at us funny. And I don't, want to be, I don't want to be the strange one. You know, on the flip side of it, you have a saying of our Prophet ﷺ, congratulations to the strange ones. Right? It's on the other side. But what I wanted to share with you today is some brief reflections from an ayah of Surah Al-Baqarah. And this is a complicated subject, but I want to try to simplify it in a few minutes uh, for our benefit. The first thing I want to share with you is sometimes there are opinions about an ayah in our tafsir. There's many, many opinions, but some opinions become more famous. And when they become more famous, people start thinking this is the only opinion. This is the only way to look at it. So for example, the ayah I'm going to share with you is La ikraha fi deen. Allah Azza wa says, There is no possibility of forcing anyone in the religion. You cannot force into the religion. I cannot pressure someone to become a Muslim. I cannot pressure someone to even stay a Muslim. I cannot. There's no pressure in the religion. There's no forcing, no coercion in the religion. Now, there are many opinions about this ayah in our tafsir history. But one of the opinions was, some people said, Oh, this ayah nusikhat bi ayat al-kitab. They said, this ayah is no longer, we don't follow this ayah anymore, it's mansuh. Because the, the ayat of fighting came after this. 
In other words, there's no forcing in the religion, but later on the Prophet ﷺ was commanded to fight the disbelievers. So clearly he was forcing them because he's fighting them. So this ayah is no longer applicable. This was the understanding. This was not the only understanding, but this was one of them. And I'm here to share with you that that understanding is actually one of the weaker opinions on this ayah. It's one of the weaker positions. First of all, Allah's, the Quran, we call it, you know, uhkimat ayatuhu. Uhkimat ayatuhu. Its ayat are stitched together. The ayat of the Quran are stitched together. And the one who stitched them together is Allah Himself. So when Allah puts Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen is ayah number one, and Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim is number two, and Maliki Yawmideen is number three, the order of these ayat is put together by who? By Allah Himself. By Allah Himself. And you know in speech, when I'm speaking to you, the words I say in a sentence have to be organized. And then the sentence after the next sentence has to be organized. If it's not organized, you won't understand what I'm saying.